0: You know, Troy, I, There's sometimes when you uh, come in on Sabbath mornings, when you uh, are busy working around, I, I forgot I have my headset, so I'm going to be here in the pulpit, all right? I'm going to, this is, a, I, can, I can stand right here, I apologize for that, because usually I'm a, I'm a mover, you know, but um, praise God, I'm going to grab this pulpit and preach, all right? Amen. amen, amen. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Nice to, I feel like there's a barrier here something yeah. Nice to uh, see each one of you, and it's a beautiful, warm day, isn't it? I woke up and walked outside at, you know, 6.30, and it was already hot, and so uh, today's uh, going to be a warm one, but praise God that we can be in a cool house of God, and this Father's Day, um, we can celebrate our Heavenly Father, amen, and regardless of... of. Uh, Uh, what life brought you. Maybe your father uh, wasn't an exemplary character. Sometimes people struggle with Father's Day and and saying, you know what, my dad wasn't there for me, but God is always there for you. Amen. And uh, it's a blessing to be here this morning. And, you know, as we were singing the opening hymn, Give Me the Bible, uh, and, and Bob mentioned it, I just thought about the Unstable condition of our world as as we mourn with those that lost loved ones this past week, um, a shooting that took out a large number of lives, a whole lot. And and um, um, as we think about the unstable condition of our world, we praise God that there is one that is stable, that there is a God in heaven who does not change, and He's given us a book. That we can trust. And so my prayer is that as we open this book this morning, our hearts and minds would be filled with both wonder and peace from God's throne room. So let's, let's bow our heads and ask God to be with us. Father, I want to thank you for being a God that gives peace. And Lord, regardless of our weeks, regardless of how the devil has tried to push us around this past week. We want to come with open minds and hearts, ready to be filled with the treasures from your infinite storeroom, Lord. God, fill us from your word, we pray. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. James, James, I invite you to turn in your Bible's to the book of James. James is right after Hebrews, and if you don't have your own Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And this last week, Pastor Sam began our study through the book of James. And this morning, we're going to continue that study, and we are going to be looking at just 10 verses. 10 verses will consume our time this morning, and those are verses 9 through 18. And I believe that they have a message for us today. The poor, the rich, the tempted, and a good God. But before we begin our perusal of these ten verses, I want to offer two quick things that have struck me personally about the book of James. One a while ago and one more recently. And the first is, about seven years ago, I was listening to a sermon... And the sermon's title was Special Instructions for the 144,000. Sounded interesting. I listened to it on a website called audioverse.org. And essentially, the preacher was uh, espousing his theory that James contains, the book of James contained special instructions for the 144,000, which if you look in Revelation, are God's last day people. Now obviously the entire book contains, or excuse me, the entire Bible contains uh, special instructions. But he made a lot of connections between James and the 144,000 Revelation that I had not noticed before. And after listening to that sermon, I came to a, and, and it was his conclusion, but I agreed with him that that I believe in these days that we're living in, before Christ's second coming, these last days, that James is especially, not more than any other book, but it's especially a book of special relevance to God's last day people. And if you want to listen to that sermon, go to audioverse.org, and it's by a preacher named Peter Gregory, and the title of that sermon is, Special instructions for the 104,000. So I, I'm, I'm glad that we're studying the book of James. I was excited when Pastor Sam and I were talking about that. Because I think more than ever before, James is relevant to us today. The second thing that struck me about the book of James, and this is more recently, um, as recently as last week when Pastor Sam was preaching, was verse 1. And look at James chapter 1, verse 1. And the Bible reads, James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to quickly, and I want to do this in just two minutes, um, but I want to quickly show you four brief Bible verses why I think that James saying he's a bondservant of God and of Jesus, why that's so powerful to me. All right, So uh, go with me quickly to Matthew 13.55. Matthew chapter thirteen fifty five. Book of Matthew, first book of the gospel, Matthew chapter thirteen and verse fifty five, and I'll go ahead and start reading. It says Matthew thirteen fifty five, is this not the carpenter's son? Talking about Jesus. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Jos, or Joseph or Joseph in the Greek, Simon and Judas. Pastor Sam already mentioned this last week, but looking at it from Matthew, James was the oldest stepbrother of Jesus. We know he's the oldest because his name is listed first in the order of names in the Bible. Especially those times, if you were listed first, you'd be the oldest. So, first of all, James is the oldest stepbrother of Jesus. Now, I had an older brother, and the last thing in the world that my brother Daniel would admit would be that... He Daniel was lower than me. Absolutely not. He was the older brother and he made sure growing up to make sure that I knew that. And James here, the older stepbrother of Jesus. Now, on top of that, let's go to Mark 3:21. Mark 3:21. So he was the oldest stepbrother of Jesus, Mark 3:21. Second gospel, we're just Matthew, Mark, and we'll go a verse in John. Matthew, so Mark 3, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. The Bible says, but when his own people, so when Jesus' own people, it's talking about his family members. When his own people, when his own family heard about this, heard about him healing and teaching and preaching, his family went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus' family, his stepbrothers, thought that he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. This Jesus guy is healing people and casting out demons. And because of the pressure of the Pharisees, they thought, you know what? we gotta, we got to lay hold of this guy. we got to put him in a straitjacket and lock him up in his closet at home. He's crazy. So James, one, was the older stepbrother of Jesus. Number two, James, along with his family, thought Jesus was crazy. Now go to John 7, 5. Book of John. We're marching right along. John chapter 7, verse 5. John chapter 7 and verse 5. John chapter 7, verse 5. The Bible reads, John 7, 5, it says, For even his brothers, Jesus' brothers, even his brothers did not believe in him. So, one, James is the oldest stepbrother. Two, he thinks Jesus is crazy. And on top of that, he, James, along with his brothers, do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You get the picture that I'm painting here that James, earlier on, did not have a positive view of his younger, maybe in his mind, annoying stepbrother. Then, look at Acts 1.14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts 1, 14. The Bible says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. These are talking about the disciples in the upper room after Jesus died on the cross and went to heaven. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with... The woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So Jesus' brothers, the ones that said he was crazy, the ones that didn't believe in him, suddenly are in the upper room with the disciples praying because there was a transformation that happened. And we won't go there, but if you look in Acts chapter 15, James, the stepbrother of Jesus, who thought he was crazy, who didn't believe in him. Not only was he in the upper room praying with Jesus, but on top of that, James became a leader of the early church. And what struck me was what happened? How could this brother, stepbrother, older stepbrother, who thought Jesus was crazy and who didn't believe in him, suddenly become a leader in the movement that he didn't believe in? And I'll tell you what took place in between what we read in John and Acts. And that was an event called the cross of Jesus. The cross of Christ did something to the family of Jesus as they saw the love manifested there that transformed their lives. Amen? And as you read the book of James, it's interesting because James doesn't mention, like Paul, the cross. James doesn't mention the resurrection. James doesn't mention some of these heavy Christian themes that the rest of the New Testament espouses. However, at the very beginning, he simply says, James, a servant. And he doesn't say, hey, I was the brother of Jesus. i got to grow up with that guy. Check me out. He simply says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. No longer did he say, I'm the older stepbrother, but I'm a servant of the Messiah. Because he recognized that Jesus was God. Amen? And so James, my friends, as you read this book, there's something special about this man. He was a converted man. He was a man that loved God with all of his heart. And as you read James, you can see that there is a compassionate, caring side. James is heavy. James has some some prophetic undertones. He really can speak uh, deep and, and, and strong language. And yet you can tell that there's a compassionate, caring side. And I believe if we go back to James, and forgive our detour, but that struck me about the book of James, and I wanted to share that with you. James chapter 1. In James chapter 1 and verse 9, I believe that compassionate, converted side of James comes out in a very simple verse. James chapter 1, verse 9. And uh, we'll try to go quickly through these verses. So it says here, Let... The What type of brother, my friends? The lowly brother, glory in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Now remember in James 1, 2, the Bible says, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Remember, Pastor Sam talked about that. And as you look at the book of James, there are various trials that he's talking about. This is not... A a uh, isolated verse. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and it's like you know, like a uh, little pockets of wisdom. You know, there's that and that. But James was actually writing to a group of people. There was a community that he was writing to, and there were trials they were experiencing. And as you look at the book of of James, um, chapter four talks about how there were interpersonal tensions. There was strife and fighting. And you know, James three he talks about the untamable tongue. There were you know, uh, uh, fighting each other with words. In James 5, he talks about sickness. So there was sickness among this community. But the theme that he spends the most time on, oh, oh, three times, James talks about the poor and the rich. He talks about economic disparity and he talks about poverty. And so clearly, this community, there was a, a group of, of people that did, did not have many possessions. James here was writing to the Jewish Christians, and think about that for a moment. In Palestine, you would have this was written before the you know fall of Jerusalem, and is written actually James is one of the first books probably written in the New Testament. Um, it's one of the earlier books, and and so um, here in this book you would have had these Jewish people that have just become Christians, and they lost their community. You know, the Jews, you know, they were hated by the Romans. The Romans hated them. They hated the Romans. And suddenly, if a Jewish became a Christian, now he's got no one on his side. He just lost the one community that was on his side, the Jewish people. And, of course, the Romans hated him as well. So he's stuck in the middle. And on top of that, the Jewish Christians, their jobs and livelihood most likely were tied up in their family and in their community. You know, a Jewish person would have had a job there in the community with his family. So if he's lost his friends and his family because he just became a Christian, he would have probably lost his job as well. So these people were literally, not spiritually poor, they were literally poor. They did not have many uh, uh, possessions. They did not have a a lot to call their own. So he says, let the lowly brother, the, the brother of low degree, and... Not only were they poor, but they were treated with contempt, especially in that society. Man, the poor were looked down upon. Man, you don't have wealth, you don't have status. It wasn't like here in America, the land of opportunity. If you were poor, there was no opportunity to better yourself. And in some way, I think that our society is perhaps somewhat similar today. Yes, we're the land of the free, and we're the land of America, the land of opportunity, and and yet there's still this disparity between those of status who have jobs and education and those who do not. I heard of a pastor who was moving to a new church, and before his first Sabbath, he decided to visit the church that he was pastoring. So the next week he was going to be introduced to the church and he was going to be preaching. So the week prior, he wasn't supposed to attend, but he decided to show up as a homeless person. So he made sure that he grew a beard or something and dressed up and altered himself to to, uh, disguise himself. And, And he had not met most of these church members, so they wouldn't recognize him. And he walked into this church as a homeless person. And unfortunately, to his own church that he was about to be pastoring, as a homeless person when he was there, that no one talked to him, that no one sat next to him. People kept their distance. He smelled. He was dirty. No one invited him to stay for potluck. And he didn't say anything. Walked out. And the next Sabbath, he decided to show up as a homeless person again. The same guy. And wouldn't the church members be surprised when they see the person coming up from the pews And we want to invite the new pastor to come forward and preach the message. And here comes the homeless person in his garb to preach the message. And I'm not sure what he said, but I'm sure he had something to say. Words of admonition and encouragement. And I think that that in our society, it's, it's easy to look down upon those that perhaps don't have the education we do. Perhaps don't have the wealth that we do, because if we are to be honest, friends, if we live in Southern California and we have a roof over our head, we're wealthy. You know that uh, I, think I was reading um, that that almost half over three billion of, of of people in the world, so almost half live on in the world live on two dollars and fifty cents a day. And 80% of the world lives on $10 a day. So friends, we could say that all of us, I mean, compared to others, perhaps have a lot. But here, James gives some encouragement to those that are walking through that situation. And even though, yes, maybe, you know, we could consider ourselves rich Some of us and go through tough circumstances. It's tough to put food on the table. It's tough to pay our bills every week. Like these people in James that he's talking to. Sometimes some of us feel like that homeless person that walks in. And maybe not not, uh, economically poor, but maybe spiritually poor. We feel like we don't fit in. We feel like no one cares about us. And to those individuals, James says here in verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory or boast in his exaltation. In other words, he's saying, Let the individual that is impoverished and living in poverty, let him rejoice in the fact that he is a child of the king. That word exaltation means lifted up. So friends, regardless of... Of how much money gets paid into our checking account each month. Praise God that each of us are a a son and daughter of the King. And we can rejoice in the fact, we can boast in the fact that, you know what? I don't have a lot on planet earth to my name. I have my Honda Civic and my bike and that's about it. And a beautiful family, praise God. But I don't have much. But I'm going to a place where I have a Heavenly Father who is preparing a home for me. And He's preparing a home for you. And we can glory and rejoice in that fact. Patrick Henry, one of our nation's founding fathers who is remembered for his famous speech, "Give me liberty or give me death," said this to his family members at the end of his life. He said, "I have now disposed of all my property to my family, but there is one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus." He says this, "If they had that, if they had faith, and I had not given them a single shilling; they would have been rich. And if they did not have faith in Christ, they would be poor. Friends, if you have Christ, you are rich. And even if you are wealthy in the world's eyes, but don't have Christ, Patrick Henry says, if you don't have Christ, you are very poor. And, and in essence, that what, that's what James says next in verse 10. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, But the rich glory, implied there, that word, but let the rich glory or boast in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. So James here uses somewhat of a play on words. Because the word here for humiliation, the Greek word tapianos, is basically the same word as lowly in verse 9. The lowly brother. So the lowly brother is the same word for humiliation that James uses in verse 10. In essence, in verse 9, James is saying, let the lowly brother glory that he will be brought high. And in verse 10, he's saying, let the high brother glory that he will be brought low. It's the great reversal. As one commentator puts it, the despised poor, from Christianity, the despised poor learns self-respect And the proud rich learns self-abasement. In other words, Christianity brings to the poor man a sense of his own value. And it brings to the rich man a sense of his humility. And so Christianity brings to every man what he needs. It essentially puts the poor and the rich on the same playing field. It equals the ground, so to speak. So that regardless if I'm in contact with a homeless man... And here I am with my own car and a roof over my head. We are both human beings that are sinners, my friends. And I think in our society there is this level of, well, even in the church sometimes, that, you know what, the pastor or the elders or or maybe they have more status than someone else. But here James says, you know what, we're all on the same ground. We're all on the same ground. But James continues by saying, you know, the great danger of riches is that they tend to give man a false sense of security. I have everything I need. And again, this can be applied to all of us, as mentioned. I have everything I need. I'm okay. I have resources. I can cope with anything. But to drive his point home, James draws on imagery from the book of Isaiah. And he says there that as a flower of the field, the rich will pass away. And he continues that same analogy in verse 11. Verse 11 he says, For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat, than it withers the grass, its flowers fall, its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. Now we're familiar to this phenomenon in Southern California. Same thing that happened in Palestine happens here. A spring rain brings beautiful flowers, but the hot desert sun quickly fades them away. And James here even talks more specifically to the Palestinian area because he, that word there when he says, uh, no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat. That burning heat specifically is talking about in Palestine, there was a southeast wind that used to come up during the spring. And one person says it, it Feels like a blast of hot air when the oven door is opened. During the spring, it blows constantly day, ni- day and night. And one, one individual even said this, that the hot wind, that, that hot southeast wind can change the color of the landscape from green to brown in one day. Wow. Here the rain comes, the flowers come up, and overnight things change. And James applies that to the rich man. He says, So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. He likens the rich to these flowers which seemingly are powerful, strong, majestic, and beautiful, yet in the height of their glory are brought down. Now growing up, my dad always used to say, Jeff, it's all going to burn. He always used to say that. And perhaps he used to say that when His four children's eyes were maybe tinting green as they looked upon materialistic things. And he would always remind us, kids, it's all going to burn one day. And isn't that the truth? That one day, it's all going to burn. I'm not going to drive my Honda Civic up into heaven, friends. There's no parking spots up there. There's not a bike rack up in heaven for my mountain bike. There's no room for our material possessions. My friends, the only thing that we can take with us is our character And so the question that James poses is, what are we focusing on? Because our riches will fade away like those flowers. What is our priority? The flower of the field passes away. Its appearance perishes. And so the rich man fades away. But James continues by saying, you know what, it doesn't have to be that way. He brings the poor and the rich to equal playing field, to equal ground. And he focuses that, you know what, riches, the rich, man, they'll fade away. But he says, you know what, it doesn't have to be that way. You can endure trials and you can last through them. You don't have to fade away. He, he uses, uh, in verse 11, notice how many words have that connotation of fading. Actually, in verse 10, the flower passes away. Verse 11, the grass withers. It falls. Its beautiful appearance, appearance perishes. And then at the end, the rich man fades away. Like five different times, these words that have this connotation of not lasting. You know, just like the bad tomato that's sitting up there on top of your refrigerator that you never eat. And eventually it starts fading away. James says, you know what? You don't have to fade away. You can last. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. Blessed is the man who endures. That, That word means to not run away. To not flee. To stand your ground. How do we endure trials? First of all, James says in 1 verse 2, Well, consider it joy. Have joy when you're facing them because trials produce patience. But but here he gives a second response. He says when you face trials, don't run away from them. Endure them. And friends, I think that in our society, we have a disease called escapism. We tend to escape our problems. When something difficult comes our way, when we don't want to face it, you know what, after a long, hard day at work, I just want to go home, turn on the TV, and escape it all. And for two hours, I don't have to think about it. Or society says, you know what, I just want to escape my problems, I'll go down to the local bar and I'll drink my problems away. But in Christianity, we use more socially acceptable things to escape, like media, like social media, the Internet, television, work, anything to escape the pain. But, but James here says, face that temptation. But how? How do we face temptations? Well, in verse 12, he gives us one way that we can. How, how can we endure it? Knowing... Notice this, that in verse 12, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. If I am going through a trial and I know, you know what? This is not going to last forever. My difficulty that I am facing is not going to last forever because I have a Savior who's going to give me the crown of life. That gives hope, does it not? And James here says, reach forward to that crown. But then he gives a negative response to temptation. He gave two positive responses. Face it with joy. Endure it. But then he shows a negative response to facing temptation. That's in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Apparently, there were some that James was writing to that were blaming God for all the trials in their life. You know what, God? This is your fault. If you really love me, you wouldn't allow this to happen. God, this is on you. And you know, from the very beginning, man has tried to blame God for their sins. Turn with me quickly to the book of Genesis. From the very beginning, the very outset, Man has blamed God for their sins. Genesis chapter 3. First book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12. Very first book of the Bible. The Bible reads in Genesis three twelve. Then the man, Adam, said, The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree and I ate. Notice what he says. He says, you know what, God? That person, Eve... Who tempted me, you gave her to me. You were the one that created her. It's your fault. And from that point in time, it seems that humanity has always tried to blame someone. And if we don't blame God, maybe we even blame Satan. As one phrase goes that perhaps you heard, the devil made me do it. Ah, it's the devil's fault. You know what? I walked into temptation and I just couldn't help it. It's on him. There's a story that goes of a father who ordered his son and commanded him, Son, this afternoon I don't want you to go swim in the canal. Okay, Dad, he answered. But later that evening or afternoon the son came home carrying a wet bathing suit. Apparently, he had gone and swam in the canal. Where have you been, demanded the father. Swimming in the canal, answered the boy. But didn't I tell you not to swim, there? asked the father. Yes, sir, answered the boy. Well, why did you, the father asked. Well, daddy said, I had my bathing suit with me and I just couldn't resist the temptation. And the father asked, well, why did you take your bathing suit with you if you knew that you were going to swim? And he said, well, I wanted to be prepared to swim in case I was tempted. And isn't that the case sometimes? That, you know, here's this boy. You know, I wanted to be prepared in case I was tempted. He was setting himself up, was he not? He was setting himself up. You know what? And essentially the boy was saying, I couldn't help it. He blamed not Satan. He didn't even blame God. That boy blamed temptation. His temptation's fault. I couldn't help it. The temptation to eat that cookie was too strong. But friends, James here wisely places, notice this, he places moral accountability not on God, not on Satan or temptation, but at the end of the day, on me. Go back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And notice what he says in verse 14. And I'll go ahead and read this. James 1.14 he says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. At the end of the day, friends, I am to blame for my sin. I cannot blame the devil. I can't blame temptation. I can't blame God. At the end of the day, it's on me. And he uses, James here uses a word drawn away that was used to speak of hunting and fishing. And so when a hunter or fisher had a bait, they would draw away, they'd lure their, their animal to come, and they would entice them to come and be trapped. And in the same way, we are lured and drawn away by the bait of sin. And the devil makes it look nice and shiny. He somehow convinced us that, you know what? That bait that has that shiny hook is actually going to taste good. But friends, James tells us that that desire doesn't lead to good things. Notice verse 15. He says, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. He uses the analogy of an individual having a child. They hear desire first is conceived... And it's dwelt upon. And then that gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it is full grown, leads to death. This past week, my wife and I dealt with a little critter named a mouse. And this little critter named a mouse... Was not doing nice things in our little home that we have and moved into, and perhaps you've experienced those little critters before. And I was, as I was reading this, this this chapter and these verses, I thought about that mousetrap, that mousetrap, and there that mousetrap has a little bit of peanut butter at the end, and right above it, the jaws of death. And 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 you know, I couldn't help but compare. What what James is here is talking about the same thing where Satan tries to to get us and we smell that peanut butter and we say, Mmm, man, that would taste so good. And right above our head, the devil's got this jaws of death, this this, you know, trap. And we go in there and we take a bite, and it snaps. We won't complete the picture there, but but um But but we know that, that, that sin is dangerous. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but ask myself, why do I mess around? Why do we mess around with sin sometimes? As the book Steps to Christ says, every act of transgression, every neglect of the grace of Christ is reacting upon yourself. It is hardening the heart, depraving the will, making you less inclined and less capable of yielding to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we, we make sin such a light thing. But you know what? It's, well, hey, it's not that big of a deal. I did it last week. I'll do it this week. And I haven't been struck down yet. But here James is pleading with his audience, listen, sin leads to death. You can't escape it. It is a trap that will get you every single time. But friends, praise God that there is a way out. Amen. That James here does not leave his readers with no hope. He does not leave his readers with, with negative imagery. But says, you know what? There's a way out. And notice what he says in verse 16. He says, verse 16, listen, don't be deceived, my beloved brother. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from who? The Father of lights, with whom there is no variation Or shadow of turning. Mm, Isn't that beautiful? You know, I had a friend growing up that had a father that they didn't know what to expect each day from their dad. Some days their dad would come home angry. Some days he would come home happy. And some days he was something in between. But they couldn't quite wrap their hands around But their dad always seemed to 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 be changing. One day he was good. Another day he was bad. And and there was a lot of other things going on there. But but I thought about this verse here because it says that our Heavenly Father is the exact opposite of that. That, friends, we know what to expect from God. Amen? We don't have to worry. You know, sometimes, man, my Heavenly Father, sometimes he he gets angry and and sometimes, you know, we, we have this picture of God that he fluctuates. Well, the God of the Old Testament, he's an angry God. And the God of the New Testament, maybe he's a little bit nicer. And we have that same picture that my friend did of her dad. That we don't know what to expect. But, but here James is saying, you know what? God does not change. Notice what he says, that there is no variation or shadow of turning. There's no variation or shadow. We know what to expect from God. And what to expect from God is just a simple four letters. G-O-O-D. And that is good. Every purpose and intention of God, friends, is good. And this Father's Day, I want to just impress that upon your mind, to remember that, that God is good. Please, please, if you've thought that, you know what, I can't trust God. I can't trust Him. I I don't know what He thinks of me. There's no way that a God could forgive me. Just this past week, I was in a Bible study, and the individual asked me, Pastor Jeff... Are you saying that when God takes an open look at my heart and He sees everything there, that He doesn't leave me beside the dust? They were wrestling with who God was and who they were. And I told that individual, you know what? God is good. And sometimes we forget that, friend. Sometimes the devil in his traps... He makes us think that it's opposite. Man, God can't love someone like me. But friends, yes, He can. God is good. And one of the the final ways in verse 18 that he tries to argue that God is good is this. Of His own will, verse 18, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creature. And notice what James does here. In verse 15, he says, sin brings death. But in verse 18, he says, God brings life. Amen? Do you see that contrast? He's trying to say, hey, listen, sin leads to death. But in verse 18, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth to life. Sin leads to death, but God brings to life. Amen? Amen. And friends, my, my challenge this week is as we think about this chapter in James, as we think about being on the same playing field as everyone else, may we look to each individual that we see is exactly the same. We're we're all in the same boat. When we face temptations, may we know that there is a way out. And at the end of the day, friends, may we know that God is good. Let's pray. Father. I want to thank you that you are a good God and I want to thank you so much for the book of James and thank you for inspiring the Holy Scriptures to encourage us, to challenge us. And Father, I pray that your word would speak to each of our hearts. Thank you on this Father's Day that you've given us a passage that talks about our Heavenly Father, the Father of lights, to whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. And Lord, we thank you that you do not change, that you remain the same, that you are a God of love. We pray these things in your name. Amen.